Well, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for our time tonight, this opportunity to be together, to open your word together, to think about the truths that not only that have been shared here tonight and what you have impressed upon the hearts of your people, but also uh, what we will learn uh, for our good and for your glory tonight from your word. And so we ask your blessing upon our time in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I will ask you to take them and open them to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. Gospel of John, chapter 16. I have entitled the message for tonight, What to Expect from the Holy Spirit. Now, what to expect from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, of course, is in the final words of His earthly life with His disciples. He has been speaking over time, some very profound truths to them with the explicit purpose of calming their uh, fears, their concerns of his imminent departure from the world. In fact, um, he has been so direct at times that his words have been uh, commands for them to, to do certain things. In fact, back in John chapter 14 and verse 1, he says, stop allowing yourselves to be stirred up by the present circumstances, right? Don't let your heart be troubled. Stop letting your heart be troubled, in fact, is the actual language of that phraseology. You need to stop doing that. This isn't supposed to be a time of great trouble. In other words, while you're while all this is taking place and it's true that all these things are happening and it's very disturbing now, there's no need to be troubled about it. Continue to trust in me, he says. You trust in God, trust in me. I am coming back to get you. I will not leave you as orphans. Our relationship is as secure as it's ever been. You will still uh, be in a relationship with me. We have a oneness of relationship, and your relationship with each other is to be that same way, one of oneness. And all of those things should and must bring comfort to everyone who truly knows Jesus Christ. All of those same truths. For you and I sitting here tonight as Christians, they should be a comfort to our hearts. But we also know the reality of being a Christian will bring hostility. It will bring persecution. The Bible tells us that is a reality for us as Christians. We are reminded of that. We were reminded of that even last week in verses 18 to 27 of chapter 15 that we will be hated, in fact, it said, by the world. Jesus tells his disciples that's going to be the reality. You will be hated by the world. The domain of Satan wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Wants nothing to do with you and I because we are attached to Jesus Christ. And because of him, the world will do all manner of evil against you and I, the Christian. Sadly... Sadly, as it says in the first few verses of chapter 16, the persecution will come not from outside the religious community, but from inside the religious community. They will make you, he says, verse 2 of chapter 16, outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. 
Then he says in verse 3, and these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. In other words, they're, they're saying they're doing it for God, but the reality is they're not in a relationship with God at all. Now, over the past couple months, as we have been studying this section of Scripture, I've tried to place myself in the disciples' shoes. I hope you've tried to do that yourself in your own thinking as we have gone through these passages in John 13 and 14, 15, and now here in chapter 16. I've tried to put myself in the shoes of the disciples and gain some understanding of the potential emotional upheaval that they probably were going through on this very night. They had a lot of joys in their memory of walking with Christ over the past two plus years. The lessons they had learned were stark in their memory, the private times of intimate fellowship that they had had with Christ in many different places, all of that seems to be coming to a tragic end. And the reality that is ever before them is pain. But in it all is one of the great paradoxes of Scripture. One of the great paradoxes of Scripture. And it's the same paradox for all true believers. The paradox is this, whatever it is that may seem to be great loss for us is to be counted as our greatest gain. That's the paradox. Whatever is seemingly great loss for us is to be seen as our greatest gain. Whatever's on the grandest stage, even if it's Uh, where we lose our life for being with Jesus Christ, or whether the loss comes in some kind of lesser form, whether it be just a disappointment in relationship or a sickness that comes upon your life, some kind of persecution, all of it is great gain for us as Christians. And this is the principle that Christ is using in our text for tonight. Encouraging those who are with Him that although he's leaving, in their minds this is a great loss. In reality, it was to be their greatest gain. Now, I want to just start our time tonight by reading for us the verses that I want to spend a little time in, and that begins in verse 5 of chapter 16. Verse 5 of chapter 16. But now, Jesus says, I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. 
All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. We can stop right there. The time has come. Before, Jesus merely spoke of a time, a time that was coming where he must depart and go back to the Father. But now, he says in verse time, now is the time. But now I am going to him who sent me. Before, he spoke of the coming departure, something that was future. They were curious as to where he was going. They wondered what he meant by that. You remember back in chapter 13 and verse 33, Jesus said this, A new or little children, I am with you a little longer, a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also where I am going, you cannot come. And Peter asked Jesus the question in following his, his words in verse 36. Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? And Jesus says, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you'll follow me later. You can't go with me. And so right now, they are filled with sorrow, it says in verse 6. Now, all there is for them, at least in their heart, is sorrow. No one is asking, where are you going, like they were asking before. No one's asking that, because I said these things to you, sorrow's filled your heart. No one's asking me, where are you going, like you were before, and it's because they sense a great loss. They're grief-stricken. And so Jesus introduces, again, this principle. Your loss, in reality, is great gain. It says in verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Nowhere in all of the Gospel of John do you find greater teaching on the great gain that we have through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and his work. Nowhere in all of the Gospels will you find a greater teaching about the work of the Holy Spirit on behalf of us as Christians. And what I want to begin to do tonight is really just to encourage us because many of us are struggling. One of the areas we struggle the most is just in telling others about Jesus Christ. Certainly we do that from time to time. We even hear testimony here, and that's a great thing. But many of us are struggling, not only in that area, but other areas. The turmoil of our hearts, the turmoil in our souls is there. It's real because of various circumstances in our life. Some of us are ill, and that's a great burden to us. Some of us are having to deal with that as an ongoing difficulty. Some grieve over the loss of family members and the pain that that brings. We even heard recently... As many of you may know, Steve Bucci, his father, passed away this week. Relationships have been broken. Emotions have been strained. Sorrow fills the place. But I believe this God, I believe the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, wants to encourage us. 
We're not here by mistake in this text, at this moment, in this time, by mistake. This is to encourage us, helping us to understand just how the Spirit works, just how the Spirit of God works, first in the world as a whole, and secondly in the lives of those who are the disciples of Jesus Christ. So the first encouraging answer that we get for how the Holy Spirit works is how He works in the world how the Spirit works in the world. This ought to be very encouraging to us, especially when it comes to evangelism. Now, we may think that since the world is the domain of the evil one, that God no longer operates there. But we can be assured that that is not the case because His power is accomplished through the Holy Spirit. God works through God the Spirit. Notice verse 8, and He, when He comes, there's a guarantee that He is coming because Christ is gone and Christ has sent Him to us. So when He, when He comes, the person of the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Did you notice that God the Spirit in this entire passage has a twofold ministry here on this earth? One part is with the world, and the other part is with the saints. One part is with the unbelievers, and the other part is with the believers, and his ministry with the unbelievers is a ministry of conviction. It's a ministry of conviction. We have to remember that when we think about our lives as Christians interacting with, especially, the lost world. The Holy Spirit has a ministry of conviction. The word convict literally means to reprove or to convince, to convince. I, I, I tend to lean towards the idea of convince. Both of those words speak of the Spirit's work, reprove or convince, but I, I think the word convince uh, kind of says it better. And I think it ought to relieve our hearts, particularly as Christians, when it comes to being who we are and what we learned last week, that we are martyros for Christ. We are martyrs for Christ. We are witnesses, is the real sense of that word, witnesses for Christ. The Spirit's work ought to be a relief to us when it comes to our individual ministry of witnessing. That's what a martyro is, a witness. Reprove means to correct what is wrong. That's the idea of reprove. To set some error right. That's what reprove means. But convince, convince is to ensure that someone understands what may have been previously unknown. To convince someone is to have them understand what previously they did not understand. And rather than that aspect of ministry being ours... It is the Spirit's job. It is the Spirit's task to convince, to make sure that that takes place in the world. This is where so many people go wrong when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to evangelism, thinking that it is our task as Christians to convince people, that we must convince them 
of something they previously did not know. We must have enough evidence. We must have all the answers. We must have an answer for every detail. We must do everything exactly right. We must have the right arguments at the right time in the right place so that we can convince them. And if we can't, if they're not convinced, then we didn't do our job well enough. Well, I want you to know tonight that we have a duty And our duty is to be obedient to what Christ has commanded us to do, to be witnesses for Christ. Right? He even says that in 15. You will bear, in chapter 15, verse 27, you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. We have a task to do what God has commanded us to do, to be witnesses, but it is the job of the Spirit to do the convincing. It is the job of the Spirit to do the convincing. We cannot do that. We cannot do that even on our best day with our best arguments. So it doesn't matter how high we are on the intellectual scale. It doesn't matter how well or irrefutable our arguments might be. None of that will do any convincing unless the Spirit convicts. And I believe this is part of what Jesus wanted to get across to the 11 disciples who were with him that night. Listen, you're going to be my witness. And it's not going to go well. In fact, they're going to make you outcast of the synagogue. They're going to kill you. And they're going to say they're doing it because they're doing it for God. And I told you these things so that when it does happen, you'll remember that I told you these things. Your job is not to convince them of the truth. Your job is simply to witness. He's saying, you must go. You must bear witness of me. Upon saying that, their anxiety must have been pretty high. They must have been saying something like this, okay, but without you with us, Without you being here with us, not only to speak, but to show others who you are by your deeds, who's going to listen to that? Who's going to listen to us, the uneducated Galilean group? With you gone, no one's going to follow. No one's going to be convinced. Jesus is saying, sure they will. Sure they will. They'll be convinced. You know why? Because it is the Spirit who does the convincing, not you. And the advantage is that He is with all of you all the time. He's not limited by time and space. The Spirit's not limited by time and space. Jesus said, listen, I've been with you. And I've been with you from the beginning, but the Spirit's going to be with all of you, and He's going to be with you all the time, and He's not limited by time and space. He will be with each one of you. So in that way, His ministry is unlike that of Christ while He's on earth. Christ was limited by time and space. Christ entered into our world. He became a man. He was limited by time and space. He independently set aside the independent use of his divine, some of the attributes, so that he might become like us. Christ was not, in his humanity, omnipresent. He didn't lose that attribute. 
but it was not exercised in Christ while on earth. Christ was limited in that way, in scope of his physicalness. What freedom then? What freedom we have to share the gospel without fear? What freedom we have to proclaim Christ knowing that we do not have to convince anyone of the validity of the message. I don't have to convince anybody to believe what Jesus says to be true and right. I just merely have to rest in knowing that it is the Spirit who convicts the world. This is what He will do. He will convict the world. And Jesus goes on to tell His disciples and us the first area in which the Holy Spirit convicts the world is in the area of, notice, sin. It is the Spirit's job to convict the world, and the Spirit begins that conviction in this area of sin. You notice what it says in verse 8 and 9. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning, first, sin, and then jump down to verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. And this is something we must understand, something we must realize, something we must think about and never forget. No one ever came to Christ, no one ever became a follower of Jesus Christ without first being convicted concerning sin. There is no salvation without a recognition of and a conviction about sin. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke 19.10. But the problem with us or the problem with man in general is that man does not believe that he's hopelessly lost spiritually. doesn't believe that. He's lost because his sin that has separated him from God and it is God that must now find man. Man wants nothing to do with God. So Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those who find real and lasting happiness are those who realize they are bankrupt spiritually. Those who are convinced by the Holy Spirit that they are spiritually lost. Those who are brought to conviction concerning their sin God saves or can save. I remember Jesus' words to the Pharisee in Luke chapter 5, verse 31. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but the sick. It's not those who are well who need a physician. His whole point was that only those who realize their true condition are savable. So it's the Holy Spirit that brings this conviction in life. One man said it this way, nothing else can be appreciated unless first, unless first of all there is an appreciation of the sinfulness of the human heart and life. Nothing else can be appreciated unless first of all there is an appreciation of the sinless or sinfulness of the human heart and life. The first and foremost of all sins is the sin of unbelief. Sadly, in our world, most don't consider unbelief even to be a sin, yet it's the worst of all. Why? Because it's belief that is the agent of salvation, right? Faith. 
You have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And the sin that will not be forgiven is the sin of continual unbelief. So the first area where the Spirit's work in the ministry of the world is to convict the world concerning sin. It's not our job. It's the Spirit's job. Let the Spirit convict of sin. There's a second job the Spirit does in reference to the world, and it's this. It's the area of righteousness. You notice verse 8, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. Now, jump down to verse 10. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me. So the first place of the Spirit's work is a conviction of sin, but, but then the Spirit moves to the place where righteousness can be found. Right? Here's your condition. You're a sinner. You're lost. You need something that you cannot get on your own. And then the Spirit comes along and starts to convict concerning righteousness. What a wonderful and joyful reality to know that God did not leave the ministry of the Spirit just at sin and judgment. How horrific it would be if the Scripture simply said where Jesus is saying, when He comes, He'll convict the world concerning sin. And that's it. You'll all know why in the world you're going to hell, but there's no way to be saved. That would be tragic. We would have no hope if that's all there was. But placed right in the middle of that is hope, the offer of true righteousness. It cannot be found in the works of men cannot be found in keeping some kind of religious ceremony as we've been talking about at length in our morning time. The convincing that the Spirit does in the heart of man is that the only righteousness that will be acceptable is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know that? Because it's provable. He has been proven acceptable because He goes to the Father and we no longer behold Him. When God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, He was saying to the world, this is the only one I accept. All others I reject. That's what He was saying. This is the only one I accept. So it was and is the resurrection that gives us the historical evidence of what kind of man God will accept. You want to know what kind of man God will accept? The only kind who was accepted, that is Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit convicts the world that its righteousness will never come close to the righteousness found in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. You have to say, here's your sin. Now, if you want to get saved by your righteousness, compare your righteousness to the only one who has gone to the Father. Jesus Christ, that's the only one he accepts. Is your righteousness like the righteousness of Jesus Christ? No man can rightly say yes. And so Charles Spurgeon wrote of this, and he said, quote, The Lord takes a man, even when he is sinful and conscious of, the, conscious of that sin, and makes him righteous on the spot. How? 
by putting away his sin and justifying him by the righteousness of faith, a righteousness which comes to him by the worthiness of another who was wrought out, who, who has wrought out a righteousness for him, unquote. You see, this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit's work upon an unbeliever. You're a sinner and you need righteousness. Your righteousness will never work. The only one whose righteousness ever came anywhere to be acceptable by the Father is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You behold me no longer. I went to the Father. Someone else wrote this, quote, The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we should pray as Paul did in Philippians 3, 9, that we may be found in him not having a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but that which is by faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that comes by faith, unquote. This is the job of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can convict of sin. Only the Holy Spirit can convict concerning righteousness. There's a third area that the Holy Spirit convicts the world. The Spirit's ministry in the world is a conviction concerning judgment. When He comes, He will convict the world, verse 8, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 11, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. It's the world's way to have an escapist view of life. That's the world's way. I don't like what's going on, so I'm going to do whatever I can to escape that kind of environment. doesn't matter if it's the end of a bottle. doesn't matter if it's the end of a pill bottle. doesn't matter if it's the end of some kind of other illicit activity. Whatever it is, I just want to escape. That's the world's way. The escapist wants to believe that there's no judgment to follow his life. No one... No one wants to believe that final judgment will take place. Nobody. Nobody wants to believe that. We all know it's coming, but nobody wants to believe it. In our own human simplicity, all we want to believe is that we can do whatever it is we like to do without any consequence in the future. Have it your way. The general rule of the world is simply that there will be no day of judgment. There will be no day of reckoning. And oftentimes the world will believe this simply because God, being patient and gracious, doesn't immediately bring the consequence upon their sin. But there will be a day of reckoning. We all know it proof that it is coming is not only that God's word speaks of it, but the fact that Satan has already been judged. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. While Jesus Christ was on the cross, Satan may have been laughing, thought he had won the victory. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, quoting from Psalm 68, that when Christ rose from the dead, he ascended on high and led a train of captives free. 
train of captives. That's, that's wartime terminology. That's one army conquering another army's terminology. One army comes in, takes over the other army, and carries off the spoils of war. Satan had lost, and Christ took his spoils with him to the heavenly home. Just as Genesis said, Satan may, as prophesied in Genesis, may have bruised the heel of Christ, but Christ crushed the head of Satan and won the victory. writer of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. Who is that? That is the devil. And might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to the slavery all their lives. Jesus Christ rendered powerless the one who had the power of death. The word powerless, he caused it to be useless. He caused that fear of death to be useless in those whom are his. The one who had the power over death is now useless because of Christ. And because of that, the entire world has been shown the truth concerning God's judgment of sin. God hates it. But I want to give us a caution here. Because sometimes we can convince ourselves in our zealousness that conviction saves people. And I want to caution us here because mere conviction doesn't save anyone. Mere conviction doesn't save anybody. Remember when the Apostle Paul was taken before the Roman leaders? And he's before Felix in Acts chapter 24. And he preaches to them and he tells them all that's going on. And Felix knows the truth. Felix knows some details about this new sect that they had labeled them called the Way. Felix wants to know what's going on and so Paul speaks. And Felix had conviction. He was convicted. Verse 24 of Acts 24, that some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing, get this, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come it's interesting, the New American Standard says self-control there. Idea is sin, righteousness, sin, and judgment, these three things. Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the, pres- for the present, and when I find time, I'll summon you again. Felix was convicted. 
But we have no record as to the reality of whether Felix ever gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Felix just left Paul in prison. You see, sometimes we can be lulled into thinking that just because someone is convicted, then they'll be saved. This person hears the truth. They hear about their sin. They hear about righteousness. They hear about the judgment to come. They sense some sense of conviction. And we think they're close to being saved. But while it is true that all who exercise faith must first be brought under conviction... And that conviction brought by the Spirit concerning sin and concerning righteousness and concerning judgment, it does not mean that all who are brought under conviction will be saved. Conviction without being followed by faith leads only to greater guilt and shame. If an individual will not come to Christ, no matter how convicted they are of sin and righteousness, then they will experience the full judgment of God forever and ever and ever. So how much better, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 3, verse 15, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear His voice, do not Harden your hearts. Now is the day of salvation, right? That's what we tell people. There's conviction on your heart. Don't wait. Don't say tomorrow. Don't say the next hour. Don't say the next minute. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. It's not a tomorrow thing. It's a now thing. So it is the Spirit who convicts concerning sin. It is the Spirit who convicts concerning righteousness. It is the Spirit who convicts concerning judgment. This is the Spirit's task with the world. This is not our task with the world. This is the Spirit's task with the world. Our job with the world is simply to be witnesses. We're to bear witness for Jesus Christ. I want us to end there tonight because while it's true that this particular part of God's Word speaks to the Spirit's work in the world, there's something we have to remember that the Spirit does not do it without us. We cannot ignore the emphasis of verse 7. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You see, while it is the Spirit's job, the Spirit does the actual convicting in a life, it is us the Christian, the true disciple of Jesus Christ that God uses to take that message that He uses in the process. So while we must be encouraged that 
We don't have to do the task of convicting anybody. We have to also, in even looking at this passage, not simply be encouraged, but be exhorted. We have to be exhorted because we are the human channels God uses through which His convicting message comes. We're the human channels through which His convicting message comes. That's how God does it. By the power of the Spirit working through you and I. Simply as we walk obediently before Him. That's our task. To go and to speak the truth. You say, I don't know what to say. I'm not sure how I'm going to say it. I, I don't even know if I have the words. I think we can rely on the Spirit's work in us to help us with what to say. Certainly we need to be in His Word, and we need to be saturated in the truth of His Word. And when the time comes, those things which we are spending our time being saturated in will be brought to our minds. We can share with people exactly what He says. So let us draw near to God, ask Him to purify us, cleanse us, that we might be fearless we might be bold instruments in His hand. That the world might be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for tonight. Challenge upon our hearts. Thankful that we encouraged the Spirit does His work in the hearts of people. But our job is just to take the message, to be a conduit of the truth, knowing all along in our heart and mind that the Spirit is working, working in us, working in those whom we share with, the world, continually convicting And some of those who are convicted, Lord, will be brought to faith in your sweet Son. Thank you for that encouragement in our hearts and that exhortation to us. Help us to be bold. Help us to not fear those who want to do harm to us, knowing that you have told us ahead of time that is the case. We know they hate you. And so we thank you, Lord, for these things. We thank you for the Spirit's work. Help us to submit to him and submit to your word in the process that you would be honored in Christ's name. Amen.